This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Mitchell Hall's new podcast, The Haunted and the Hunted, a six-episode audio series inspired by the classic monster stories. If monster lore, action, and adventure is your taste, The Haunted and the Hunted will make you wish Halloween was every night of the year. So again, that's The Haunted and the Hunted by Mitchell Hall, and it's available now on all platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 511 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Christopher M. Savasco, making his 15th appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Nightmare, Black Static, and Space and Time and in books such as Zombies, Shambling Through the Ages, and Shades of Blue and Gray, Ghost of the Civil War. He's a graduate of the Clarion and Taos Toolbox writing workshops, and he was also the founding editor of the award-winning magazine Paradox. And we'll be speaking to him today about his first novel, a darkly twisted psychological thriller called Beheld, Godiva's Story. And today's show is brought to you by The Haunted and the Hunted, a six-episode audio series written and narrated by Mitchell Hall. And here's a description of the show. It says, Lon Chaney Jr. has had a long career in Hollywood playing monsters in movies such as The Wolfman, Son of Dracula, The Mummy's Ghost, and The House of Frankenstein. But now Lon is down on his luck and going through a rough patch in his career. That's when he's approached by the CIA with a very unusual mission. They want Lon and his friends to travel to communist Cuba and infiltrate a secret meeting of supernatural monsters. For Lon, this is the role of a lifetime. It's going to take all of his acting talent and creature design skills to make it out alive. The Haunted and the Hunted by Mitchell Hall is available now on all platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you want to get the word out about your own book, movie, event, or product on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, you can learn more about that over at geeksguideshow.com slash ads. And now here's our interview with Christopher M. Savasco. All right, so we're here with Christopher M. Savasco. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, and so your new book is called Beheld, Godiva's Story. So how'd this book come about? Well, uh, I've long been really fascinated by uh, ang- the Anglo-Saxon period of history, uh, particularly the 10th and 11th centuries, right at the end of that period. And, uh, you know, over the you know course of, of exploring all sorts of uh, history of that period, one figure's name that kind of kept arising over and over again was that of of Godiva and uh you know apart from being this this sort of powerful and influential noblewoman of the 11th century of course uh you know her name sort of rang bells when i heard it because we all know the you know the name of the Godiva chocolates with her picture on them and we we've you know a lot of us have heard the story of the woman who rode naked on a horse through the streets of Coventry and so uh, you know, I, I I was intrigued by that legend and how it came about. And, uh, you know, the more I started looking into it, the more I realized, uh, well, it really came about a pretty considerable time after she lived in the 11th century and is most likely sort of an apocryphal story or is maybe, uh, you know, based on some other similar incident that was elaborated on over the ages. But I, I was interested to... Uh, explore, you know, how might something like that naked ride 
if it indeed had happened, and that was my sort of starting point for the book, that was the conceit of Beheld, was if the ride had happened, how could I kind of restore it to a more plausible uh, 11th century setting stripped of the sort of uh, inaccuracies and anachronisms that wouldn't have fit with the time period. So that was the jumping off point. Right. And so I guess let's explain that this is a historical novel, even though you've mostly written horror, short short stories and some fantasy and, and science fiction and stuff. But this is, is that right? This is a straight historical this novel? Is, this is, yeah, this is a historical novel. And in, in uh, yes, most of what I've written has had historical themes in them, but they've mostly been more sort of speculative fiction, you know, supernatural horror, uh, fantasy um in in short form uh but for novel length yeah that uh i i this is definitely uh you know just straightforward historical fiction and so i actually when i went back into listening because i i've mentioned this book in our uh in my bios of you when i introduced you as a guest right. on the show and so I was, I was curious like wait how far back did that go and actually i was kind of surprised it goes all the way back to the first time you were ever on the show back in episode 71 so that was okay. about 10 years ago well, that was a very, very early draft <laughs> back then, yes. Um, and it was one of these things that I, I had written and then uh, kind of let it sit there and percolate. And since then, I, I've written a couple of other novels that I'm currently shopping around to agents. Um, but in the meanwhile, actually over the pandemic, uh, that first year, the summer, first summer of the pandemic, I took this one out um, and uh, dusted it off. And gave it a top to bottom overhaul, like completely revised the story. Uh, you know, the, the 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 bare bones of it remained the same, but like I really, really, you know, it it, it was dramatically uh, revised. Um, and then when I was happy with it, um, started shopping it around and uh, found uh, that Lethe Press was interested in publishing it, and here we are. So what was did so what was that process like of submitting it and like hearing that they. That it was accepted um, and stuff like that? Yeah, well, I mean, I knew that they were uh, expanding more and more, uh, Lethe, into uh, publishing historical fiction, um, both historical fantasy and straight historical and historical horror. Um, uh, and uh, I, I thought this might be a book that uh, would fit, uh, be a good fit for, for them. And, uh, basically contacted, uh, the, the editor, Steve Berman, and, uh, he was interested in looking at it. Um, and he got back to me and said, yeah, he, he wanted to publish it. And, you know, I was thrilled, uh, cause this, this is, this is my debut, uh, novel at this point. So, uh, very exciting. Yeah, yeah, and congratulations, and I'm looking forward to mentioning that in your bio from now on, that the <laughs> book is you. available. Yeah. Um, so, so you said that, yeah, so you, you take the this legend of Lady Godiva, and then you said that you wanted to make it, make your story sort of as if it had actually happened. So kind of what is sort of the, the basic premise of, of your version of the story? Well, so if I was starting from, from the... Uh, the idea that okay, somehow or another, she ends up having this this ride, this this ride, naked ride on horseback. Um, it's you know, I it, it, in the legend that we've sort of inherited that has evolved over the centuries. Uh, what what we are told is that 
she wanted to relieve the town of Coventry of this sort of burdensome tax that uh, was really, you know, oppressing the people there. And she went to her husband, Leofric, who was the Earl of Mercia. Basically, he controlled sort of central England uh, during this period of time in the name of the king. Um, and asked him to do so. And he basically turned to her and said, well, yeah, okay, fine. I'll do that when you ride naked through the town square. Basically meaning, yeah, I'll never do it because he figured, you know, that's something she would never do. But in this legend, she calls his bluff, does it. And he's just like, all right. Fair enough. I <laughs> promised I would, and 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 he does it. Um, and then you know, so there's a lot of the problems with that story. Um, in terms of, like I said, in terms of the sort of anachronisms. Number one, it sort of seems implausible that this like pious and noble uh, noble woman of the time would have like just decided to ride naked through her hometown. Also, while there were some contentious taxes during that period of time. Um, you know, that basically that was what was known as the Herageld. So that is sort of a national military tax to, to support the, uh, the standing army. And that would not have been something that her husband or Leofric could have struck down unilaterally. It would have had to have come from the king. So that also made no sense. And Coventry, the lands there were mostly, we know from historical records and land grants and things like that were owned by Godiva in her own right. So arguably it would have been up to her and not her husband, even if it were a local tax, to strike it down. So a lot of this story, you know, there's things that just don't add up. And, and you know, like I said, this the first version of the story, the legend, doesn't appear until about 150 years after uh, – Godiva lived, and yeah. then it's embellished from there. So Actually, um, let me let me jump in there because I, I just think it's interesting. I'm sure you've observed this, being as into history as you are. How many historical figures are only known for doing or saying one thing? That yeah, it turns out yeah. that they never said or did. Right, right. It is. It's 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 amazing. I mean, it's you know, would would we know who she is today? Would would we have chocolates named after her today <laughs> if it wasn't for this ride? I don't think so. I mean, they have. You know, the, the, the rappers for Godiva chocolates have her naked on a horse. I mean, you know, so that's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's kind of fascinating how that happened. But at the same time, I feel like these things don't arise in a vacuum. And so I was interested to think like, well, you know, this story came into existence for some reason. And I, I was trying to figure out, well, you know, maybe it didn't happen exactly as the legend portrayed. And that was sort of an exaggeration or an embellishment. Um, that later chroniclers and historians added added to. Um, so I, you know, I don't want to spoil too much, but basically I, I have it happen in a very different way. She does end up riding through town, but it's not necessarily um, uh, by choice. Um, and it's also, you know, only tangentially related to things like the tax. I mean, the tax is still a big issue in my, my book, um, but again, not necessarily related to the version of that 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 happens in the legend. I'm trying to avoid too many yeah, spoilers yeah. here. Yeah, but yeah. Well, in, in the book, it's very much about voyeurism. And oh, absolutely. Yeah. Was that just implicit? Like, if you're like, I'm going to write a Lady Godiva story, it basically the theme has to be voyeurism. Yeah, I mean, you know, to, to some extent, the 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 it's a kind of objectifying legend of her. I mean, it's basically just, you know, makes her be this naked lady that we all titter at on, on a horse. And, you know, interestingly, 
it wasn't until like the 1600s, I think, until uh, another very famous figure is added into this legend, the figure of Thomas, who um, when when she rides through town in this legend, uh, in this late edition of the legend, most of the townsfolk, you know, sort of go into their homes and avert their eyes so as not to shame their, you know, beloved noblewoman. But one man named Thomas, who's a tailor in the legend, uh, peeks at her and is immediately struck blind, or in some versions, he's struck dead by the hand of God for, for, for his voyeurism. And this is, of course, where we get the, uh, the concept of a peeping Tom, uh, comes from this legend. Uh, so I think, you know, in some ways, to me, it seems like, that addition of Tom into the legend uh, is almost like a way to insulate the the reader or the audience from feeling like, you know, the perversion of, of gawking at this naked woman vicariously, because then they can kind of say, oh, yes, but look, see how naughty Thomas was? He was terrible. He shouldn't have looked at her. And it's sort of like he kind of fills the role of a of a psychological kind of scapegoat for the audience and, and insulates the yeah. Well, it gives the, the it gives the story a, a moral lesson, I, right, right? Sure, I suppose. Um, but so, yeah. So when I decided I was going to write about this, I was like, well, you know, voyeurism has to be front and center in here, and and so I found myself actually very, very much writing outside of my comfort zone. Um, you know, by by an order of magnitude. Uh, while, you know, probably if you look at it page for page, only, you know, a, a small percentage of my book has this sort of voyeuristic erotic content. It is definitely a prominent theme throughout my book, and it is far more risque than anything else I've ever written, uh, short or long. Uh, so I, I was in this awkward position of having to, as I said, write very much outside of my comfort zone. But I think it was something I just felt like the legend compelled me to do. Like I, I had to kind of confront that head on and uh, and make it, you know, uh, front and center in in this book. Could you say, like, what was your approach to writing the the sort of sex scene kind of stuff? Like, did you did you think about what kind of approach you wanted to have, or like, did you refine well, your approach over over all the years you were rewriting the book? Yeah. Uh... Yes and no. I mean, I, you know, obviously the, the, the figure that's the stand in for the Tom figure from the legend in my book, uh, you know, I, I decided, I think early on that he was going to be kind of, kind of the antagonist, I guess, of the book. I mean, and he's, and I don't think this is giving too much away. You figure this out pretty early on in the book. He's basically insane. I mean, he's sort of a sociopath and a psychopath and he has these obsessive ideas. Uh, that are based on his own sort of warped sense of faith and spirituality that is kind of a, um, kind of an amalgam of prevailing, uh, sort of hagiography and saints, uh, lives from the time, you know, Anglo-Saxon saints, and it mixes in Welsh mythology and legend from, uh, I read a lot of like the Mabinogian when I was doing, uh, writing this book and, and a lot of the, the sort of myths and legends from that, from Welsh mythology feature into his own sort of cosmology and worldview. And yeah, unfortunately, Godiva finds herself, uh, at the center of this, this obsession by Thomas. Can, can I ask you? So, so like, um, Thomas's cosmology seems a little Lovecraftian to me. There's the stuff about, you know, when the stars are right, the goddess <laughs> right, will come right. and things. And I know, I know you're a big Lovecraft fan. I was just wondering, is that, colored at all by your love of Lovecraft or is that just sort of I, I period think, period accurate 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think so. I, I mean, I yes, I do. I have read all the you know the Lovecraft stuff, and and I've written sort of things in that milieu as well. But no, I I, I wouldn't say it really had too much of a direct influence on Thomas. Uh huh. Um. But yeah, so this is like yeah. So in addition to the a lot of sex, there's a lot of uh, violence as well. Sure. Um, that one of the blurbs is from Karen Essex, and she describes this book as or the the milieu is, quote, a distant, brutal age when Viking was a verb and secret pagan cults littered England's forests. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, okay. I mean, it's yeah. And, and when we say violence, it's mostly military violence that we're seeing here because, you you know, you're right in the in the thick of the Viking age. Uh, this is a period, you know, in terms of the politics of England at this time, it's a really tumultuous period that Godiva lived through. Um, which is part of why it's so fascinating to see that she retained her her high status in society through all of these regime changes because she was there at the time when what what's known as sort of the Danish conquest happened when some invading Danish kings came in and basically took over the English throne uh, for more than a generation. I mean, you had you know King Knut. Uh, was, you know, on the throne for the longest period of time. But then it's also his uh, sort of sons uh, who follow after him, Hartha Knut and Harold Harefoot and all these different people. Um, and, uh, uh, y- you know, so she's, she was there to see that, that Danish uh, upheaval. Uh, and it was a violent upheaval. I mean, this was a violent takeover of, of the country. Um, the kingdom. And, uh, then she was there to see the restoration of the English bloodline to the throne in, in the form of Edward, who we know as Edward the Confessor to, to modern, uh, uh, historians. And, uh, then, uh, you know, sort of by the end of her life, she, she even was around for the Norman conquest and the Battle of Hastings in 1066. We, we know that she, she was alive after that happened. And we know she was not alive by the time William the Conqueror did his doomsday survey, which was 1086. So somewhere in that 20-year period after the Norman Conquest, she died. Uh, so she really was around for a lot of violent military upheaval. And, of course, that's that, that appears on, on the page in several of the scenes that I, that I had to deal with. I mean, one of the reviews I read, it said that, it, that this will appeal to fans of Game of Thrones. Do you see mm-hmm. that? Uh, do you agree with that? I think so. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's a fair analogy. Um, cause there's the same sorts of, uh, um, there, there's not too many battle sequences in my book. Um, but you definitely see a lot of the kind of aftermath of battle. You see a lot of the preparation for battle. You see a lot of the, uh, sort of psychological effects on the characters of having lived through that sort of violence. Um, and then, you know, as I said, because of the legend, there's a little bit of the, uh, more than a little bit of the risque in this uh, as well. And so I think, you know, it's hitting a lot of the notes that that Game of Thrones hits. And the, the sort of political intrigue, like the part where oh, the, yeah. the, the Emma character is is sort of dispossessed of her property. That that was giving me very strong Game of Thrones. But... Yeah, yeah. The, the behind the scenes political machinations here. I mean, everyone basically trying to position themselves to to survive this kind of political upheaval and not really knowing like, Oh boy, if I back the wrong horse here and the other side wins, you know, how, how can I hedge my bets and, and all of that going on? So there's, there's a lot of that happening, particularly with Leo Frick and, and uh, Godiva. I mean, one thing that really struck me, you know, I don't read a lot of historical fiction. And so like the, the names 
you know, this is England. And so yeah. I was expecting, you know, you know, like Thomas, William, Roger <laughs> right, right, type right. names. And it's yeah. these very, very unusual names. So is that just, that's just what it was, was like? Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. It, and actually it's, it's funny because not only do we have these kind of odd names, like the sort of Danish names, like Knut and Harthaknut, and then even the, the sort of English names, you know, things like Ethelred and, you know, uh, uh, even Godiva herself, who I use the, the more sort of old English version of her name in my book, which is, I mean, phonetically, it looks like Godgifu, G-O-D-G-Y-F-U, which is sort of an old English name that means God's gift. Um, and, uh, but apart from from that, uh, you, it's so funny when you're when you're researching this period of time, you know, as an author trying to write a novel, you end up there's so many characters who literally have the exact same name. I mean, there's like a million and one yield gifts and uh, and whatnot. And so, uh, you know, I, I, what I what I decided to do to do, to confront that issue is like, uh, for example, one of the many yield gifts in this book uh, is Godiva's uh, granddaughter, who later, uh, at the time of the Norman Conquest, ends up marrying Harold Godwinson, who was the king who uh, died at the Battle of Hastings. Um, but I chose to use the form Alditha for her, just to, which is another. See, that's the other thing. When you look at Old English sources, there's depending on which source you look at, the names are all spelled differently, even though it's referring to the same person. So I, 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 you know, I chose different spellings to distinguish the different characters with the same names, and I tried to choose the spellings that were, you know, perhaps more easily pronounceable by modern English speakers. But sometimes you, you know, there's just not much you can do about it. I mean, I, I actually read a review where someone said, "Well, I had I had trouble reading the name Canute because I kept reading it as." you know, re- reverse, yeah, re- reverse the U and the N there. Um, and, uh, and I was like, well, well, you know, what could I do? That was the King's name. He was one of the <laughs> most famous, famous English Kings of the 11th century. So, you know, it's, it's what it is, but you know, the, I, I feel like in particular, if we're talking about people who like to read, you know, fantasy like Game of Thrones, I mean, there's all sorts of crazy names in fantasy. So <laughs> I don't think these are too, too far out of field, you know, when you, when you compare it to some of the names that, that we see. Yeah. I mean, could you talk about kind of your interest in history and the intersection between the historical fiction community and the science fiction community? Because I mean, when I first met you, you were editing this magazine called Paradox. And so yes. this is something you've been into for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm, you know, ever since high school, I've been a big fan of historical fiction and of fantasy. And then, you know, later, once I started to get into kind of the fandom of both of those communities and, you know, uh, going to conferences and conventions and whatnot, I'm always surprised that while there is some overlap and, and particular, if you have things like alternate history and, and things, uh, you know, like that, um, there's, there is overlap and there's, there's a lot of historical fantasy being written, great historical fantasy, but uh, the, the fan bases often don't overlap as much as you would expect them to. Cause I feel like, um, you know, anyone, like, like we said, anyone who reads Game of Thrones would love reading Bernard Cornwell, who's one of my favorite authors of straight historical fiction, um, and vice versa. And yet, um, I don't see the same faces when I go to like the historical novel society conference as that I do when I go to the world fantasy convention. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure why that is. Uh, cause 
I'd have to think like there would be a lot of overlap between, uh, you know, taste and books, but, uh, you know, I think that was, that was part of my impetus for starting paradox magazine back in the day. Like I, I was trying to highlight the, uh, that overlap and bring the two together under sort of one umbrella of a, of a magazine that at the time was publishing short fiction that was either historical or fantasy or a mix of both historical fantasy or alternate history. So yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting kind of uh, divide there. Well, because I mean, I like I've been to the World Fantasy Convention, and I've never been to the Historical Novel Convention. Right. So I mean, you know, yeah, I'm, most I'm, people ha- have have not. They've either been to one or the other. I, I I mean, I guess I'm I'm the odd bird out who goes to both of them. So it, is the um I don't know is the social milieu notably different at the histor- among historical novelists than fantasy and science um, fiction authors? I mean, it, it, to be honest, the panels and the and the discussions and the speakers and and the sort of events themselves really are mirrors of each other. I, I'm trying to think. I guess, there, I guess there's more room parties at World Fantasy Convention. I don't know if maybe it skews toward a younger audience, the people that are reading fantasy. Um, that that may be one of the distinctions. I mean, you definitely see a lot more people in the 50, 60 year old, 70 year old crowd at that's the biggest contingent at the historical novel society convention. Um, you know, I would say the, well, let's say the 40 plus crowd. Um, whereas, uh, I mean, there's, a, there's, there's certainly plenty of that at the fan world fantasy too, but I feel like it skews a little younger there. Like what was your sort of, what was your experience publishing paradox? Cause you did that for, it was like 2003 to 2009 or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So what kind of what, when you look back on that now, like, what do you, what do you take away from that experience? Uh, I mean, it was incredibly rewarding. I mean, I loved doing it. It was, and it ha- I kind of had to have in order to do that. I mean, it was definitely a labor of love. It was not a, uh, you know, cause I, it's funny. I was doing it right before the big explosion of, online magazines. Um, so I was still doing it in print at the time. Um, and it was, I was sort of one of the last new magazines that, that launched in, in print like that and stayed in print. Um, I think if I were to ever do it again now, or if I were doing it today rather than back then, it would be, it would be an online magazine, uh, number one, but it, but it was great. I mean, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and you know, I definitely, uh, the magazine was well received both at the historical novel society conferences and at the world fantasy type conventions. So, uh, you know, I, I was always really happy with the, with the response that I got from the readership. I mean, so do you have like, based on that experience, do you have advice you would give to other people about editing a, a short fiction <laughs> magazine? Yes. In the form of one of those Batman and Robin memes where Robin is just like, Hey, I'm going to start a, ma-, and Batman <laughs> slap him and say, no, <laughs> no. Uh, I, I guess my advice would be, uh, if you're going to do it, make sure that you're going into it knowing that it's going to be a labor of love. I mean, I, I, I considered myself fortunate by the, that by the time I finished the run of paradox that we were, uh, it was funding itself and was breaking even financially, but you know, it's not going to be a money-making endeavor. Uh, so you have to kind of do it as a labor of love. Mm-hmm. I was actually, when I was thinking about, you know, when I was, um, when I was looking over your bibliography and thinking about paradox and stuff, I was remembering when we first met, I was just curious, do you remember, mm-hmm. do you remember when uh, we at, first met? I believe it was at, at a Lunacon, right? 
I think that's I right. Think, yeah, I think I think we each, as as I recall, I think we were each the only person to show up to the others' reading. I think I, I was the only one in your audience, and you were the only one in mine when we were giving readings at LunaCon, and we sort of bonded over that and went out. Okay, well, actually, after. I think that's a later development because I think oh maybe we, okay. the way I remember it is that we were both on a panel about the state of short fiction, and there were two. Um, prominent editors on it was like and we were both like nobody like total nobodies at the time and there were these two prominent editors short fiction editors in the panel and they basically talked the entire time and didn't let us oh i do i do remember the panel you mean yes which i think also may have been at a lunacon i think so yeah and then then afterwards we're we kind of looked at each other and said well like nobody else wants to talk to us but we could talk to each other (laughs) so we went out to lunch yes that 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 sounds about right yeah um and then sort of what so like could you talk about your, your short fiction career? Because you've been publishing, you've published about 20 short stories um, since then, right? Uh, close to that, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, as I said, most of those have been, almost all of them have had historical uh, themes to them or been set in historical periods, but with sort of supernatural elements uh, to them. Um, interestingly, one of those stories was... Uh, shortlisted for one of the, the historical novel society, their, their UK conferences always has a short story competition. And one of my stories was shortlisted for that and then subsequently got published in a sort of best of anthology that came out in the UK. And, uh, that, the reason I say that's interesting is because that was actually a, a historical fantasy short story. And yet, you know, as I said, it was embraced by the, the people at the historical novel society conference too. Again, Getting back to my point that I, there should really be a lot more overlap between those two audiences than I think actually pans out. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I've had, uh, I had another story recently in Beneath Ceaseless Skies, um, which is a great online sort of magazine of epic fantasy. Uh, and, uh, that one was one of the few that I had published that was not in any way historical. That was just a sort of secondary world fantasy short story. I mean, I was thinking like there are two stories of yours that I, I remember really vividly. I must have heard you read them at conventions, I assume. But one of them, it's like Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft, and he's dying. And there's all these, yes. you know, yes. sort of nightmare. You know, he had these really um, intense nightmares throughout his life. And and so it's all these monsters from his nightmares are kind of coming, to, kind accompanying of, him. Yeah, at his, sort at his of, and, and like bleeding into his sort of life his own life flashing before his eyes sort of in those final, you know, hours of his life. Yeah. That, that was, that was, I, re, I really enjoyed writing that story and that one was pretty, um, I, I was pretty happy with the way it turned out. Uh, it was, a, it was originally published in a small, uh, no, actually I think it was originally published in black static magazine, the, uh, the, uh, the British, uh, horror magazine. Um, I think it was in one of their very early issues, like issue five or something like that. And then it's been reprinted a couple of times since then. Yeah, it's called Less a Dream Than This We Know. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, I, I really thought it was terrific. It's really stuck with me all these years. Oh, thank um, you. Could yeah, people, yeah. Re- so you, it's been reprinted a couple of times, I guess, or? It has. Uh, it was reprinted in in a um, uh, an online venue called love the lovecraft e-zine um and then where was it, it was reprinted somewhere else i'm blanking on right now but um yeah and uh i think that one that's, was actually, that's still that's still online though the lovecraft e-zine I, or? It, the the e-zine website is itself you might be able to find the story as well uh i'm actually not entirely sure but 
I guess a quick Google search would, <laughs> would uh, reveal that. But yeah, and it's th- called less, less a dream than this we know. And then the other one is um, there's this um, public defender and he has this alien that he's defending that's, you know, that's been brought up on charges and he's the, oh, the yeah. lawyer for this. Alien. I, you know, that one, I must have read that if you if you're aware of that story then I must have read that at some sort of convention. But that one has, I never did. That is the single story that I have submitted to the highest number of markets that never got published. How, how many markets is that? Oh, I'd, I'd have to go back and look at my records. I mean, I, I probably something like 40 or so different markets. Um, so I'm glad, I, thank you for remembering it. I guess it made a, an impact on you. But yeah, that one never did get get sold. I probably, to be honest, that was one of the first stories I wrote. If I went back and looked at that now, I would probably cringe that I actually sent it to so many places. So uh, it's probably just as well. I thought, I thought, I mean, I, yeah, this was probably 20 years ago or something. But yes, I, yes. I thought, it, I thought it was really good. And just, you can tell just from the fact that I remember it at all after so long, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that you do, but thank you. Yeah. I think you should send it out, <laughs> send it out to 41, you know, <laughs> Maybe. Some, someone out there must want a, uh, uh, a lawyer uh, alien story because you actually you actually were a public defender, right? I was I was a public defender for about uh, close to eleven years. Yeah, in uh, in New York uh, when I was li- I was living in New York City at the time, but I was working out in Nassau County on Long Island uh, with the Legal Aid Society there, and I did criminal appeals law for the entire entirety of my legal career. I am now happily retired from the practice of law, so. Because I, I remember, ta- I remember telling you that that the story I thought was really good, and you said, "Well, this is basically just what my daily life is like," you know. <laughs> yeah, with the with an alien thrown in, but yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not not the alien part, but right, but, right. Because um, yeah. because I was realizing, I guess that I don't actually because you know we've known each other for twenty years or something, but actually I don't know a lot about a lot about your life prior to when we met. So yes, I'm a man. Like, of what history. is <laughs> what is the the Chris Savasco uh, origin story? Like, how did you get into how did you de- how did you decide you wanted to be a science fiction writer and stuff like that? Oh gosh, well, I mean, I think most people, you know, it, it, that are that do write uh, tend to write what they like to read, and so yeah, I mean, I I've always been a huge fan. I, I you know, from when I as far back as I can remember, when I really got into reading, like I don't know, around third or fourth grade or whatever, like my favorite stuff has always been, uh, you know, I remember reading back then, like the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lloyd Alexander books and all that. And then of course, Tolkien. Um, and then, like I said, it was sometime in, I'd say around high school that I really got into historical fiction. Um, I, I would attribute that to, to, I had an amazing, uh, freshman English teacher in high school, Mr. Giuliano, um, who, uh, uh, you know, we read all of the Mallory's more to Arthur, um, then, and that got me into that, that sort of, you know, the Arthurian literature. And then later on my own, I remember, I think the first like novel for a historical novel for adults that I remember reading was Shogun, uh, James Clavell's Shogun. And, uh, you know, that, you know, that, then I was just off to the races after there, I just couldn't get enough historical stuff. Um, so that was sort of my entry into that. Although I will say, I do remember even as a kid in great grade school, one of my favorite uh, series of books was a historical uh, trilogy by Scott O'Dell. It's, it's, I don't remember what the trilogy is called, but it's called, it includes the books, the captive, the feathered serpent and the amethyst ring. And it's about this missionary among the, uh, the first book is among the Mayans. The second book is among the Aztecs and the third book is among the Incas. 
And that that just that has always stayed with me to this day. I feel like that's one of the seminal books in my uh, development as a reader and a writer. And then were you a history major in college or? Yeah, I actually I, I was a double major in medieval studies and English. So um, actually, the focus of my my like sort of big senior thesis in college was on uh, the the sort of the Black Death, the bubonic plague and the literature that was written in the sort of 50 or 60 year period right after the Black Death um, and, and how, you know, the, the, the sort of psychological impact of having lived through a, a cataclysm like that uh, affected the literature. Um, I, I, I have actually written one story that has to do with the Black Death and it was published in a British science fiction magazine called the Horror Express, uh, uh, horror magazine rather. Um, but really af- post college, that's when my interest shifted to 10th and 11th century, you know, Anglo-Saxon England and, and Norway and, uh, uh, Normandy and, and is there some, like, is there some book or story or something that made you focus on that time period? You know, I don't know. I don't necessarily, I, if there is, I can't think of what it was. I think it might've just been like, you know, the more I found out about the period of history, the the more fascinated I became by it. it became, you know, I mean, I think, you know, everyone, the big, the big event is of course the battle of Hastings in 1066. But then it's like, if you go backwards and forwards from there, there's just so much going on. I mean, you know, you go forward in history from there and you start to have the crusades. You go backward in history from there and you have the Viking period and the, and the, uh, you know, the, as I said, the Danish sort of conquest of England. And you go before that and there's all these fascinating characters that, that sort of emerge from that tapestry of history. You know, people like, um, Edward the Martyr, who was a, an English king who it, to this day, it's like one of the great unsolved murder mysteries of, of, the, of, uh, history. No one knows who killed the king. Uh, I actually wrote a book about that too, which is, I'm, I'm searching for a, uh, for a, uh, an agent for that one. Um, and then a, a novel you're saying you're a novel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and the other, the other p- thing that I, I, I really found, incredibly inspiring to me and and just fascinating was you know everyone tends to think of the norman conquest as like an event like 1066 the battle of hastings happened and the normans conquered england but really i mean i think it's fair to say that that battle was just the start of their process of conquest and really for about five to to seven years after that battle there was a a a a an active resistance movement among the English, uh, that in a lot of ways paralleled like the Maquis in France during World War II. Um, they, you know, they were doing covert operations. There were all these like colorful figures like Harroward the Wake and, and all these people that were, you know, living in the woods, uh, and, sa- and sabotaging the, the Normans. Um, and, and in some places, you know, fighting and winning pitched battles against William's armies. Um, and it's, it's a really, it's an, it's a really amazing period of history that, that period right after the conquest. And, um, that's, that's the other big book that I'm shopping around right now is one that's, uh, sort of a, uh, a, a wartime resistance thriller set among those resistance fighters. So is that the only other novel that you've worked on or do you have any other unpublished well, I'm, novels I'm, lurking around? Well, I am, I am working on, uh, one now as well that is a sort of, 
planned first book in a trilogy that will do what we've been talking about and merge finally sort of a little bit of fantasy with the history because it's an alternate history of the events of 1066 that um you know 1066 goes down in a very different way than it than it does in our history and as i mentioned you know this is a period in time when uh the the vikings were very active and and they had settlements at the time in greenland as well and uh so in my alternate version of history you through a series of events that i won't go into now we end up having actually some of the indigenous arctic peoples of greenland finding themselves in anglo-saxon europe um and uh you know that that was really a lot of fun to to kind of research and uh and uh and right uh i actually i i actually took a trip to greenland to to research that book so did you uh so did that influence the book your trip to or i guess all oh, your, absolutely. you went to england as well right for yeah i've been to england a bunch of times mo- mostly for the these historical novel society conferences which so basically the way they run their conferences is every other year there's a north american conference and the years in between it's in england um so i've been to three of the ones in england um, and then I've been to England also just, uh, uh, on my own earlier, uh, just, you know, traveling, but, um, yeah. So, but in particular, I, I've, I've visited a lot of the sites that, that I ended up writing about. I mean, for Beheld, uh, there's a, uh, an important scene in the book that's set at these sort of ancient megalithic st- a stone circle, uh, known as the Rollwright stones. And that is an actual, you know, stone circle that you can visit to this day. It's not, nearly as big and impressive as Stonehenge, but it's, it's actually a really beautiful site. It's, um, you know, it's covered in this sort of yellow patches of lichen. And, um, it's just very, uh, I mean, when you stand there at that stone circle, you you know, you can almost feel something mystical going on when you're there. It's, it's really, it's really nice. So did, did you have the idea? I won't say what it is, but did you have the idea for the climax of the book before that? Or did you, did Um, I had the idea of the climax for the book, but I didn't quite know where it was going to be set. And it was when I visited that stone circle that the idea occurred to me that for a lot of reasons, it made sense for it to end up being there. And one of those reasons simply being that it's only about 20 or 30 miles south of Coventry, where the, the majority of the book takes place. So, um, yeah, so actually visiting it definitely changed sort of the way that that whole scene unfolded. Yeah, that's really cool. Okay, so before we run out of time, I also want to ask you about your Dungeons and Dragons. Work. Sure, sure. Yep. So, um, cause, cause you have a thing that just came out recently called Hirot, Beowulf's Domain of Dread. Yes. You want to yes, tell us about yes. that? Well, okay, so yeah, so I, about, uh, three or four years ago became aware. I mean, I've always been, I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons since the 1980s. Um, so I'm a huge fan of the game. Uh, and I'm, a, I'm continue to be a huge fan of the current fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons. And about four or five years ago, I, I became aware of the fact, uh, through a mutual friend of ours, Raj Khanna, um, that there was this thing called the DM's Guild out there where Wizards of the Coast licenses you, um, to use their intellectual property to create whatever sorts of additional supplemental materials you want to publish, you, you know, the only thing being you have to publish them at the DMs Guild website um, and, uh, you know, and, and sort of split the profits with them. Um, but I feel like fair enough, I'm getting to, you know, play in their sandbox. And um, so I've, I've put out about 20 or so of those now um, that that seem to be 
well received. People are enjoying them. And my, the most recent one was inspired by, I just, uh, last year or yeah, last year, I guess it was, or was it the year before with the pandemic? It's kind of hard to tell. Um, <laughs> but I read, uh, Maria Devana Headley's new translation of Beowulf, which I absolutely loved. I mean, it just completely blew me away. Have you read it, Dave? I have not. No. Okay. Oh, it's. I mean, it's amazing. It's, you, it's, you can. It's, you can. Assume, if unless I've uh, covered it on the show, you can assume I haven't read or watched anything. Oh yeah, yeah. It'd be a great years. thing to cover on the show, actually. But no, it's it's phenomenal. Uh, I, I loved it. Um, and so after reading that, I mean, I feel like I had read other translations, like the Seamus Heaney one and the Tolkien one, and I loved all those too. But this one, something about it, it really resonated with me in a way that it it never had before. It really kind of breathed a new life into it for me, and. Um, so then I was just like, you know, thinking like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> what about this Dungeons and Dragons uh, thing? So, so there's, if you, if you play Dungeons and Dragons, you know that there's a setting called Ravenloft, which is basically all these different sort of horror uh, pocket dimensions um, that exist. Uh, and, and they could, you know, there's that everything under the sun could be in this, in this milieu. And so I was like, what if there were a, a sort of horrific setting based on the setting of Beowulf where, the people in that setting are sort of trapped in a never-ending cycle of of uh, violence and revenge, um, and and this whole cycle resets. You know, basically a, a, every time Grendel comes in and and slaughters everyone, and the mom comes in and gets revenge for Grendel being killed, and then it all resets, and 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 these people are trapped in this you know sort of never-ending cycle. Um, so I had a lot of fun putting together this. It ended up, I thought it was going to be like a little 10 page supplement. It ended up being a 125 page <laughs> gazetteer of, of Ravenloft and Beowulf lore that, that pulls in, you know, uh, Norse mythology and Anglo Saxon history and, um, uh, all kinds of fun stuff. I, I really had a, a lot of fun uh, putting that well, together. Well, so, so I'm looking at the, the bullet, bullet points for yeah. what this, uh, supplement contains and one of one of them is new forms of lycanthropy parentheses including were squirrel yes, so yes. so why well, have there never been were squirrels like why do you have to do do all the well, important stuff I, I don't know no that was inspired by the fact that um i mean the norse liked their their squirrels they i mean they there's like um they called them acorn gnars like they used these uh they always had these colorful ways of describing things. Um, but, uh, you know, I was thinking about in terms of the, the Norse mythology and Yggdrasil, the tree of life, how there's supposedly these squirrels that run up and down its trunk and, and whatever. Um, and so I had a character who's tied to Yggdrasil who is, you know, cursed with were squirrel lycanthropy and turns into a squirrel. So that was, you know, little little things like that just to give it kind of fun flourishes. But they turn, did they turn into a squirrel or into like a squirrel human hybrid? Both, uh, they, he can do bo both. Like all of the uh, lycanthropes in Dungeons and Dragons, they can they either turn into the full blown creature or into a hybrid form. Yeah, that's that's kind of disturbing to me. The <laughs> thought is, of it. it is, it is. <laughs> the being yes. attacked by a were squirrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Also, this features mechanics for fighting in a shield wall. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, if if you've read, particularly if you've read any of Bernard Cornwell's books or watched like the Last Kingdom miniseries based on his books, yeah, I mean, that's the way that a lot of that sort of Viking and Anglo-Saxon warfare happened. That you're sort of standing in these walls of of overlapping shields, and it was sort of you know a, a battle of attrition, like who could who could stay standing the longest before getting 
you know, before the wall was breached. And once it's breached, it's just slaughter happens, you know. So um, there there's at least in fifth edition, there wasn't really a heck of a lot of mechanics for that sort of um, group fighting. And so I, I came up with like a way to kind of allow you to do shield wall fighting in, in Dungeons and Dragons uh, that I, you know, I think it works. It, it... Yeah, no, it, it seems, yeah, it seems like, again, it's like, why has nobody done this before? And, and also if you get this supplement, then I guess you can have wear a squirrels fighting in a shield wall, yeah. which, which is always, <laughs> which is always good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Biting at people's ankles, I guess. <laughs> I also, I mean, just from reading your bio so many times, I know that one of your big hits was Philosial's Ultimate Guide to Poison. So mm-hmm. why do you think that that has been so so popular? I don't know. That is that is definitely far and away the best seller of all the the, the products I've put out. Um, uh, I don't know. I guess just because Poison is kind of an interesting... Uh, you know, there's, there's aspects of it that, you know, allow for sort of covert operations and whatnot, but it's, um, you know, there are mechanics for poison in, in Dungeons and Dragons, but they're, they're sort of bare bones. And so I just wanted to elaborate on that and come up with like, uh, you know, a lot, a lot, you know, uh, add more variety to the ways in which you can bring poison to bear in your game. Um, so that's basically what, what inspired that one. Is, is poison, is that something you know a lot about or? Did no, research, <laughs> no, yeah, yes, with all the people I've poisoned. <laughs> uh, no, 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 uh, not particularly. Um, but you know, uh, I researched it, you know, for, for writing, you know, for writing the guide and, uh, kind of expanded upon the, what was already there in the game. But is it, is it like real poisons or like, fan, Some like imaginary both, poison? Both, both, both. I mean, there's definitely things that are based on real poisons and, um, uh, you know, that exist in our world, like poisonous plants and, and, uh, substances like that. But then there's, of course, magical ones too, you know, dragon venom and things like that, <laughs> you know. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a mix of both. Uh huh. Um, I guess I was curious just to ask you about, I don't know if you've ever heard Ken McLeod's quote, history is the trade secret of science fiction. Have you heard people say that? Uh, I don't know that I have. No, I like that though. So, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's no secret. Like George R. R. Martin has spoken extensively about how I guess it's like the War of the Roses and, and various other uh, you know historical um, uh, uh, backdrops that that inspired Game of Thrones. And I, I know a lot of writers, even when they're not writing historical fiction, they're inspired by the events of history. And by the way, I know that George R. R. Martin is also a huge fan of Bernard Cornwell. Um, and vice versa. So they, they read each other's work, uh, which is great because I read both of their, you know, I mean, I, it makes perfect sense to me that they like to read each other's work. I, mean, I heard Game of Thrones described one time as like a greatest hits album of English history, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair enough. Sure. Um, and then I heard Connie Willis one time say that she thought that science fiction really should have been called speculative history. She thought that Came close yeah, that's to... great. And, and I mean, she, she's another one of my all-time favorites. I mean, what one of my top favorite novels of all time is Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. I mean, and that is that does have to do with the Black Death, which, which as I mentioned earlier, is a sort of pet interest of mine. But I mean, that's just a phenomenal book. And and again, it's it's science fiction, it's history. Um, you know, they, really, they're they're both doing 
a lot of the same thing. And it, whether you're talking about science fiction and fantasy or you're talking about history, you're sort of exploring a world that's impossible to visit in the flesh, um, you know, like, you know, barring time travel. And, uh, you know, they're both, I think, the best science fiction and fantasy and the best historical fiction is not just a period costume drama, but it's something that also resonates with the modern world and our world and, and comments on it somehow and, and is like sort of a, a reflection of the same sorts of human issues and social issues that are in some ways timeless, um, that, you know, people are, have always dealt with and will always deal with. And so I think it's an interesting way to explore those sorts of issues in a, in an unconventional setting. I mean, and yeah, I think that history is so full of just like crazy shit you never would come up with on your own. You can sort of take these these weird things from history and put a science fiction or fantasy spin out. And I'm I'm reminded, um, you know, one of my favorite short stories is Alfred Bester's Fonsley Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. And it's about a guy and he has this this robot that keeps killing people. But the robot is so valuable that he can't afford to get rid of it. And so he, uh, you know, he just keeps uh, moving from place to place whenever his robot malfunctions mm-hmm. and kill somebody mm-hmm. and and it was based on you know there was like a real it was the, you know there's a guy who had he had a slave and it was the same thing the slave kept killing people but the slave was such a big financial investment that he couldn't report him so he was kind of like stuck tra- you know traveling yeah, yeah. around uh you know and, and hiding the slaves crimes and so it's just like yeah and, and who would ever come up with something like that yeah on no, its own? I, for sure i mean actually that's funny that you say that because you know when i was writing beheld there was you know i, I particularly because I'm trying to weave into some, into the history, this legend, which is somewhat apocryphal. Um, and, and of course, whenever you're writing about something that's taking place roughly a thousand years ago, I mean, you're not going to have every piece of information at your disposal. So you're going to have to connect dots and fill in blanks and whatnot. But, you know, I was always careful to never contradict anything about known history. You know, I think that's important to, to give it verisimilitude. I mean, you don't want to disrupt unless you're, unless you're writing alternate history. But one, one of the most amazing things I came across when I was researching this book was this, and it seems on its face like it's a fantastical aspect of my story, but it's these throughout the story, Leofric is suffering from these sorts of spiritual visions. Um, there's like a series of them that he has throughout the book. That was actually based on an 11th century document, which is one of the coolest documents I've ever come across, um, called the Visions of Earl Leofric. It's called Visio Leofrici. Um, but, uh, it is, it, it was written contemporaneous to his lifetime and recounts these series of supposedly mystical visions that he had where he was when he had them. Uh, and, uh, when I came across this, I was like, okay, I I have to work this into my story. I mean, this is like amazing, you know, for a novelist. It's just like, this is a gift from the heavens. So, uh, so that one of the, one of the things that on its face probably seems like, oh, well, did, you know, did he make that up? That is actually from, from, from history. And it's like, you know, crazier than, you know, anything I could have made up, but yet it worked so well, I thought with, with what I was doing with his character. Yeah. So was it, um, sort of inevitable that you would come across that if you're researching Lady Godiva or was it sort of fortuitous? I mean, I think, I, I think if you're going to be researching Lady Godiva, you're going to be researching her husband, Leofric. And it's, of course, one of the main documents about him, but it's not something that is generally widely discussed, perhaps because it's, you know, on its face, it's like, well, okay, these are mystical visions. You know, it's not like 
you know, it's land grants or it's like political or, you know, battle schematics. So I think for a lot of historians, it's like, well, okay, that's, that's just sort of flavor text. That's not really history. <laughs> but I mean, but hey, it was one of the, it's one of the few surviving documents from his time that we have. So, I mean, I think it's not a widely known document, even though it is something that you would certainly come across if you're researching Leofric. But, oh man, I, that was just fantastic when <laughs> I, when I came across that. Well, and that's the thing, too, is that, I mean, you say that this is a straight historical novel, but with the characters who believe in miracles and pagan cults and all this kind of stuff, I mean, it kind sure. of reads like a fantasy novel. I mean, it's sort of at least somewhat open to interpretation. Yes, and I, and I purposely left it ambiguous. I mean, I think I, I, th- some of my favorite books that call themselves historical novels do that. I mean, I, I recently read Matrix by Lauren Groff, which sort of, I loved it. And it sort of does the same thing. I mean, a lot, even Bernard Cornwell does that, you know, because you are writing about people who had these strong beliefs and strong spirituality. But I think what's interesting, even more than just seeing that they believe in these things, um, or some of these things, I think what's, what's cool to me when you're writing about people and how they interact with their faith you know, it's one thing when you have a scene between two or three characters, they're always going to be sort of portraying themselves as characters as they want to be perceived. But when you have a character who is interacting with their God or with some spiritual force, sort of the the power of their faith means that they are sort of stripped naked. And you're seeing, in some ways, the truest version of that character, like that you can possibly see, because they know that they, in their minds, have nowhere to hide. So it's really interesting when you have a character, to me, in any book, that is, uh, you know, dealing with the, with the spiritual or, or the divine, because uh, it's very revealing to their inner thoughts, to me. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I never thought about that. Um, all right, cool. So uh, we should start wrapping this up. So Chris, do you have any other final thoughts or other projects you want to let people know about? No, I, I mean, thank you very much. I think we covered the the whole spectrum there. I, I mean, I'm just, uh, I had a blast talking with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And everyone check out this book. It's called Beheld, Godiva Story. And, uh, you know, Chris is, you know, one of our most frequent guests here on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. So, you know, show him some support and check out his work if you've enjoyed his commentary on. He's been on the show a lot to talk about Star Trek and uh, he was recently on our Ghostbusters Afterlife panel and stuff like that. So, yeah, so definitely go check out his website and, and stuff like that. What's your website, Chris? Uh, it is ChristopherMSavasco.com. All one word. And Savasco is spelled C-E-V-A-S-C-O. Yeah, no R. There's no R. No, everyone wants to put an R in my last name, but it's it, it rhymes with Tabasco. No <laughs> R in it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. So, yes, yeah, so let's wrap things up there. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Christopher M. Savasco for joining us on the show. I also want to thank Mitchell Hall for sponsoring today's show. His podcast, The Haunted and the Hunted, is available now on all platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. 
Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.